Full recognition is a lack of understanding in Taiwan society. People hear the words Plains Aborigine and imagine vanished people, or maybe just one big group, not knowing that there are around a dozen groups that fall under that umbrella. If they knew, if they understood, he feels recognition would come much more easily. Whatever happens, Kaisanan says he's grown up knowing who he is, loving and learning about his rich culture. He and young Taokat like him know that the Taokat people are still among us, and that whatever books say, they aren't going anywhere. I'm Curious John, and I'll see you again next week. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Shirley Lin with In the Spotlight. Welcome to In the Spotlight. I'm Shirley Lin. My Bach is co-founder of Ucha Cha, a vegan plant-based restaurant in Taipei. Mai has been in Taiwan for 10 years with her husband. She double majored in communications and global studies from UCLA, whereas her husband also double majored but in economics in Mandarin. So he told her that he wanted to move to a Chinese-speaking country. He said a better transition for Mai would be to come to Taiwan first before going to China. But after two years in Taiwan, they wanted a break. So they took a six-month backpacking trip to Southeast Asia and almost all of China. Mai decided they needed a change, so she just picked Shanghai. Let's move to Shanghai. But we're going to find out today whether they made it there after flying home to the States to spend some time with their families. We had bought tickets back home to spend maybe two or three weeks at home. Yeah. And then we bought our return flights to Shanghai. And we landed in the airport. I think I looked at him. We got to our hostel and I was just like, we can't do this. We can't live here. Really? Yeah. He's like, okay. And we got on the phones immediately and we're like, okay, we're going back to Taiwan. What was it? Yeah, I can't, I can't pinpoint what the feeling, there wasn't anything in particular. It was just this strong feeling I had of being in that city. And I realized I cannot live here. I would be very unhappy. You guys didn't even leave the airport, you mean? Yeah, we were like, oh, I think we were on the way to the hostel from the airport. And I think I was looking at the city and talking to the taxi driver. And then we got into the hostel and I knew for sure. I was like, this is not a city we want to be in. It was just so big. And it just, we hadn't found jobs yet. And we had stayed with a friend who was living in Shanghai, Mm -hmm. who we met in Taiwan. She had the experience of being in Taiwan and in Shanghai. And she told me, like, I kind of know you guys. I don't know if you're going to be happy here. I don't know if you're ever going to find your rhythm and be happy here. But at that point, I was already so stubborn and stuck in my head that, no, we cannot go back to Taipei. (laughs) Um, So we went back to Shanghai. But then at that moment, I realized, oh, this is not going to work. This doesn't feel right. So we flew back to Taiwan. 
right I, that very day, right? I, I mean, just kind of. I think the next day. I think okay. we made phone calls. We stayed at the hostel. We looked for tickets, and then I think we left the next day. You guys are wild. <laughs> Sometimes we just fly by the seat of our pants, but it was a really good decision because the first two years were kind of not our most joyous years because we refused to put down roots here because we had told ourselves we're only going to be here for a year and then we're going to travel and then we're going to go back home. So we refused to put any kind of investment into our life here. Like no nice sheets. Like we wouldn't buy anything nice. We we're like, okay, get the cheapest thing secondhand. We're not here for a long time. You guys rented an apartment. We did. And we looked for like the cheapest, cheapest, cheapest apartment. And so part of your life is where you live. If it's not a home to you, you feel in this limbo space. And so I think that contributed to us not ever feeling truly happy here. And and it didn't have anything to do with Taipei. It was our mindset at the time. And so when we came back, we thought, we realized, we discussed and we said, we're not sure what's going to be happening But let's make this our home. Let's actually find a nice apartment that we're happy with and invest in our life. You know, not try to like be as cheap as possible and save all of our money. Right. Because we didn't have any plans to travel or do anything like that in the immediate future. So, you know, we did build a really nice home and we were super happy. Then we taught English for another three years. So how did the restaurant come about? So right before we left on our China trip, I read a book called Eating Animals by Jonathan Safran Foyer. He is known for being a fiction writer. He wrote Everything's Illuminated, which was turned into a movie. But when he had a kid, he thought about kind of, what's the best way to raise my child? And one of those things is what to feed, you know, your child. And so he started thinking about our food systems. And he went on, I think, a three-year investigative journalism kind of adventure, looking into how our food is produced, specifically animals. And he wrote about it in this book called Eating Animals. And it looks at it from all different perspectives, from the humane farmer to the kind of small farmers that are trying to do it the way we did a long time ago, to the industrial farming complex. And he talked to people who worked on the killing floors and kind of the mental toll it took on them. The stories he told, like, Oh my God, they just hit me right in my soul. Mm -hmm. And I then could not look at meat or eat meat. Like I would literally just burst into tears. Oh, so you used to eat meat. Uh, yeah, I did. Until you read that book. Okay. Until I Got read it. that. Uh, when I was little, I dabbled in being vegetarian. But you know, when you're young and your family doesn't support it, it's very difficult for you to make a life change like that. I always had a very strong connection with animals and always thought it was a little weird and kind of wrong that we did. So... I just felt like I'm inclined to living this way. And when I read that book, the stories are so detailed and so well written that they really just stick with you. So after that, reading that book, it instantly turned me vegetarian. So I was still eating like cheese and eggs. Then I went on the China trip and it's really hard to get vegetarian uh, yeah. food. Yeah. I basically just took all the animal products out of my diet, okay. but didn't think about how to replace them. So then I was just eating a lot of carbs, a lot of noodles, a lot of rice, like barely any vegetables because we were also on a really tight budget. Uh -huh. So after six months of that, I was feeling really sluggish and like I, oh, yeah. I was showing signs of like poor health. Like my hair was thinning. My skin looked really bad. My really? nails were... 
My nails are super brittle, like they're breaking all the time. You're the living proof of, you know, eating too much carbs. Yeah. Well, it's not just eating too much carbs. I wasn't, I wasn't balanced at all. Like I wasn't eating enough vegetables and I wasn't looking for protein in other places. Mm -hmm. But especially in China at the time, the understanding of what that meant wasn't really there. It's like, oh, you don't eat meat? Okay, I just take the meat out, right? Yeah. And I'll give you the dish. But then I wasn't looking to replace it with like tofu or beans in any Mm -hmm. other way. When I got back, I definitely realized, oh my God, what is happening? Like something is wrong with my health. So then I started researching holistic kind of ways to heal myself with food. Then I started reading about the concept of green smoothies. Okay. And it really appealed to me because it basically you blend all the nutrition into a smoothie and you drink it and you're like, good for the day. Yeah. Right? So it's like a, you know, like a quick way to like, I don't have to think about it the rest of the day. If I drink this thing first thing in the morning, I can eat however I want the rest of the day. And at least I know I got some serving of vegetables, some serving of fruits, and I got my vitamins and minerals, right? That is a right mentality, right? Or is that not, not healthy? Uh, it's not, not healthy thinking. I mean, is that okay? I think it's okay. It's okay. Like, okay it works right. for me. It, it's just kind of your personality type, right? Yeah. Some people like to micromanage and plan their days and have all their meals. But for me, if you're busy as well. Green smoothies, it's like, this is the answer. But yeah. then you also have to be knowledgeable about what kind of greens you should be using. You should be rotating greens. There's also things you need to learn about that. And also the type of blender you're using. You have to use a certain type of blender, a really powerful one, to make sure you're breaking the cell walls of the greens. That's why you're supposed to chew greens for a long time. So you can break them down and release all the nutrients. Yeah, so, you know, there are things you still need to know in order to, you know, reap the benefits. The green smoothies, I started doing that every morning, me and my husband. It started to really help, like, give me my energy back. And then slowly over time, maybe like two or three years, kind of like my skin cleared up. My hair was growing back stronger. And so, you know, when your body isn't getting the nutrition it needs, it starts taking from the superficial systems first. You know, like it needs to make sure your organs are functioning. So it's who cares about the hair and the skin, right? And the nails. But that's the first things you see that go. So that's also the first things you'll see kind of like coming back to health, like coming back to life. Another living proof. (laughs) So, yeah. So, you know, when I was really convincing, so convincing. Well, when I was at the school, I was drinking these green drinks every morning and the kids would see it and my co-teachers would see it and they'd be like, what? is that it It looks disgusting right and i'm like oh no it looks amazing like it's this bright green color tastes good depending on the combination sometimes we would just i would mess up and buy some weird green that was like mustard green and it would just taste so like spicy and like weird (laughs) but if you get the right combination it's so subtle and nice and like if you use the right fruits Mm -hmm. the fruit flavor is so strong yeah like pineapple could mask almost anything Okay, so, true, true. Yeah, so uh, the kids and the teachers got so interested and I would let them try it. Then I started bringing extra ones for them. You know, the parents were like, how are you getting my kid to drink this? Like, it's this bright green, crazy drink. But because I loved it so much and like they saw kind of my example, they were so interested in it. And then we started doing more like nutrition, like little like little nutrition units. In class. In class, right? right? And they were so interested in it. And the parents would be like, wow, you got my kid to eat, 
you know, broccoli and they love it. And you should write a book. This is such an amazing story. I mean, but that's the reason how the restaurant came about. I saw this eagerness, this hunger to learn about these things, not just from the kids, but from the parents as well. And like the staff that I felt like, oh, you know, the information's out there, but they're not looking for it. Right. Mm. And so that's how the idea of Uchacha came about. We said, we kind of need to move, make a change in our life. Right. It's about, we can't just keep teaching. We kind of decide like, what do we want to do here? Like, do we want to attempt a business? Because actually the barriers here to start a business like this is Uh very low in Taiwan. We could do this here. And if it doesn't work, you know, we'll have this experience and we can go back home if we want to, but we'll have this experience with us. We decided we're going to go ahead. We took our savings and our families were very supportive and they actually put money in too. And we had this small fund and we looked for a location. We found two Taiwanese people who were crazy enough to join. Join us. <laughs> oh, join you guys. Okay. Yeah, they helped okay. they helped start the first restaurant. It was um Spencer's first co-teacher, Stella, uh, uh-huh. and our friend Sylvia. Sylvia had a marketing background and Stella had some experience in food and beverage here. Oh, that helps. And so they came on the team. You're listening to In the Spotlight with Shirley Lynn. And, and the name? Uchacha? Oh my god. I think it was our friend, but he just threw it out one day and uh-huh. then we just kept sitting with it and we kept going, Uchacha, Uchacha. <laughs> you know, it's a playoff, ooh la la. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh la la. I'm thinking yeah. of the cha cha dance, you know. There's like an actual, like literal Chinese translation and we thought, oh, it could be easy for Taiwanese people to say. Uh-huh. Oh, so, that's important. Yeah, right? <laughs> yes. And so um, it just seemed to fit at the time. Yeah. And now, like, most of our friends and our usual customers and even us, we just shorten it and we call it Ooch. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I like that too. Ooch, yeah. <laughs> like, are you going to Ooch today? Yeah. So um, it's got like a little nickname. Yeah. So that was kind of the impetus. It's our actually education tool is what I say. Oh, okay. Food is something everyone eats and needs, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm passionate about giving people good food to open their minds to what this lifestyle could mean. Mm. and what your diet and the food choices you make, the consequences of those. So that's why we do this, is hopefully to educate people. Hopefully, you know, they start studying on their own and start learning a little bit more. But if not, we're always welcome. Like we always are willing to talk about it. We always welcome conversation. So Ucha Cha is, like you were saying, it's a vegan plant-based restaurant. Yes. So what kind of things do you offer? You you do offer the green drinks, right? Yes. Green smoothies was like... (laughs) I was like, that is our cornerstone. That's yeah. our foundation, right? And you People know, can have them as takeout. Yeah. And Taiwanese people thought we were insane because, <laughs> you know, fresh seasonal greens blended up in the smoothie. They're like, you can't do that. And we're like, why not? Why not? Yeah, really, why not? <laughs> because, you know, a lot of Taiwanese people, I think in the 80s or the 90s, there was that big scare with people getting sick from, like, I think the pesticides on the greens. Oh, really? So in they're the just, 80s and 90s? They're just used to just cooking, like, frying the hell out of their vegetables to yeah. make sure, like, you know, nothing can make you sick. Yeah, because you make them raw, right? Yeah, they're raw. Yeah, like, they're we not, just wash them yeah, and then right. throw them in the smoothie. But we're not 100% raw or anything. Mm-hmm. I do think that there is benefits to cooking your food. Like okay. some food is actually more beneficial for you when it's cooked. Like tomatoes, right? Yes. Yeah. Like tomatoes. Tomatoes is the prime example. Do you put effort into like washing these vegetables? Oh, yeah. Is- we use uh, water and apple cider vinegar. Oh. And also 
it all starts with where you're getting your produce from. We also start with making sure we have relationships with our farmers、mm. and we know where it's coming from, especially our salad greens. Well, it's so great meeting you, Mai, and、mm. uh, hearing your story. This is amazing. I really appreciate foreigners coming here, loving this country, and then contributing something that's really helpful to the people here. Thank you, Mai. <laughs> Thank you. Classic shorts, stories from Chinese history and literature. Hello and welcome to Classic Shorts. I am Natalie So. Today, let me tell you a story from Chinese history that shows the power of imagination. Three Kingdoms era. There was a very famous commander in chief named Cao Cao, and he met a particular challenge with the weather right before he was about to go into battle. He and his soldiers were getting ready for battle, but it was blazing hot all day long. Ah, the sun is shining so brightly, and my soldiers haven't had any water all day long. My soldiers are incredibly hot and thirsty. Nobody knew where they could find water. The soldiers were thirsty and exhausted. They barely had the energy to march on, and some even got heat stroke. Oh no! My soldiers are starting to faint. We can't let this go on. I have to help them find their strength somehow. Cao Cao was really worried about the upcoming battle. Water, of course, would be the answer to their problems. So he asked the people around him, "Is there water around here?" One man told him there was water on the other side of the mountain. That's way too far, and we don't have the time or energy to go that far. Cao Cao was in trouble, and so were his men. Water was too far for them, and they were in no condition to go to battle. The enemy troops would be fighting them soon, but then Cao Cao thought of something that just might work. I have an idea. I'll take my horse to the head of the troops. He thought perhaps a little visualization might inspire his men. Look. There's a big plum forest ahead. The plums are ripe, delicious, and will quench our thirst. We'll be there in no time at all. Cao Cao's description of those plums revived the soldiers. Their mouths began to water at just the thought of them, and they regained their strength and morale. 
Toto decided to take his men into battle, and he continued to encourage them. Let's go full speed ahead. Great work, soldiers. We're going to battle. Now that victory was won by the power of imagination. Tao Tao and his thirsty troops won that legendary battle with a little help of the power of imagination. That battle went down in history and also led to a Chinese idiom. Classic Chinese phrases and idioms. There's a classic Chinese idiom, Wang Mei Zhi Ke. Anticipate plums, stop thirst. It refers to this battle where General Cao Cao inspired his troops by just the thought of plums when they were really, really thirsty. Nowadays, it's used to describe someone who has an unsatisfied desire and can only use his imagination to satisfy it. You can say, he doesn't have enough money to buy a mansion. All he can do now is look at real estate websites and dream about it. Wang Mei Zhi Ke Anticipate plums, stop thirst. Or, we can't go to a live NBA basketball game, but we can go home and use our imagination. Anticipate plums, stop thirst. Wang Mei Zhi Ke. And just watch it on TV. Hope you enjoyed that story and idiom from the Three Kingdoms era of Chinese history. Thanks for tuning in to Classic Shorts. I'm Natalie So. Time Machine. Today's time traveler is 
John Van Trieste, and the destination, Kaohsiung. Today, it's the history of Kaohsiung in 10 objects. The city of Kaohsiung has grown into one of Taiwan's largest, a place with its own southern identity that makes it different from cities like Taipei to the north. The city has its own proud history, too, and even a museum to showcase it in, the Kaohsiung Museum of History. With the museum now celebrating 20 years since its founding, the museum's curators have pulled out 10 objects from its collection that help tell the story of Kaohsiung's early development. Why these 10 objects in particular? Here to tell us why, and to introduce some of the objects, is the museum's deputy director, Wang Yufeng. Mr. Wang says this exhibit presents a great opportunity to take 10 of the museum's precious objects out of storage and bring them out before the public. Usually, he says, these kinds of objects seem far removed from ordinary people. But in this exhibit, citizens of Kaohsiung can see these important milestones in their city's past with their own eyes. Among the most precious of all are examples of some of the Singkan manuscripts. These manuscripts are a collection of documents, contracts about land and such. Maybe not the most riveting of reading material, but interesting for this reason. The documents were written by local indigenous people, writing down their languages using the Latin script. Dutch missionaries had brought the Latin script to southern Taiwan in the 1600s, but many of the Singkan documents date from centuries later, showing southern indigenous people writing their languages long after the Dutch left, and using it to make deals as well. Included in this exhibit is a document from the early 19th century, when imperial China ruled Taiwan. The contract was in force for close to a century. Attached is a certificate issued in the early 20th century, registering the contract in a new era, after Taiwan had come under Japanese colonial rule. Like many Sinkan manuscripts, this contract was entered into between indigenous people and ethnic Chinese neighbors, and so it's bilingual, with a Chinese translation to one side. Many of the other items on display are inscribed stones of various kinds from the Imperial Chinese period. This makes sense. These stones are durable, and they tend to mark important places. Three of these stones are siblings, once marking out the same area, but scattered, only to be rediscovered under very different circumstances. These stones were boundary markers for the local customs authority. In the 1860s, Kaohsiung was among those harbors opened up to foreign commerce under Imperial China's unequal treaties with Western powers. Taiwan had three other ports forced open to foreign trade, but marker stones like these have only been unearthed in Kaohsiung. It's unclear how many of these stones there used to be. Of the few stones experts knew about, one was already in the museum's collection. But in the past year or so, two more of these stones have turned up and joined the collection. It all happened thanks to two rather strange coincidences. The story starts with a group of mountain climbers who stumbled across an unusual stone one day. Had these been average hikers, they might not have known what they were looking at and just moved on. But here was the first coincidence. 
It just happened that these hikers knew a thing or two about local history and recognized what these stones were. The second coincidence came after they hauled the stone down the mountain and took it to a local police station. The way Mr. Wong tells the story, it sounds like the officers were skeptical at first about its value. One officer suddenly realized that his friend happened to have an exact copy of this stone lying in his garden. Everyone told him not to make things up, but it was true. The officer's friend worked at a temple and had taken a liking to the stone after it was unearthed during a project. Both these stones proved authentic, and in the past months, both have been donated to the museum. It's like we always say, Mr. Wong tells me, old objects pop out and find people, an interesting way of turning our usual view of discovery on its head. Most of the other objects featured in this exhibit are carved stones too. Also on display are inscribed stone plaques, taken from two sets of defensive walls, old and new, that were built near Kaohsiung under imperial Chinese rule. And there's another stone marking out the grounds of an office of guards, a task force a bit like a cross between the Coast Guard and customs inspectors. Mr. Wang says these guards were tasked with inspecting boats in the harbor. Only this last stone has an inscription of any length on it, a text warning these guards not to give people a hard time without reason. The rest of the stones are carved with just a few simple characters, explaining exactly what they are. The West Gate, the boundary stone of such and such, and so on. But this lack of words doesn't mean that these stones have nothing to say to us. In fact, each of these objects, both stones and documents, were chosen for this exhibit for a reason. The objects can be grouped into three units, three vignettes that give us a look into three aspects of Kaohsiung's early history. The example Sing Kan manuscript and other land deeds on display tell the story of Kaohsiung's land, how it was bought, sold, rented, and used as collateral early on. And it also tells a story of migration. Many literate indigenous people came from the Tainan area north of Kaohsiung. The area had been a center of Dutch power and also of ethnic Chinese settlement. Dutch rule ended, but settlement continued. And by the 19th century, many indigenous people had been pushed outward to places including Kaohsiung. Meanwhile, the boundary stones for the customs and inspections facilities tell the story of Kaohsiung's port, today a center of container shipping that even then was a place of international commerce. The plaques taken from fortified walls, meanwhile, tell the story of Kaohsiung's defensive works. The three-part story that emerges was only partly deliberate on the museum's part. Other relics from the collection are now on display in a different exhibit, so it was the remaining items that were brought together for consideration. The story of land, harbor, and walls jumped out at the curators. Old objects, Mr. Wang says, can talk to us in this way. This is fortunate, because Mr. Wang says the museum wanted themes and stories, not just a collection of ten unrelated items. The three themes also happened to match up with work the museum was doing anyway. 
It of course preserves old documents, but it's also held a symposium related to a railroad that ran to the harbor. And it's even opened a branch museum devoted to the old defensive walls. It all adds up and comes back full circle. What do Mr. Wong and his museum hope the public will learn from these 10 objects? He says the key is getting people to appreciate the connection between these objects and the area where they come from. Many people look at inscribed stones and documents and just see rocks and some paper. What could these things actually represent? And what do they really have to do with Kaohsiung? This is why it helps to group the objects into three units, showing people the bigger stories they symbolize. It's these stories and these chapters in Kaohsiung's history that the museum hopes the public will see. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another Journey Through Time. The Sound of the Puyuma Tribe on Radio Taiwan International. of islands we have high seas pocket within our EZ and sometimes enclosed by our EZs. Kiribati is an example of that. So under the the PNA we've had like a lot of um, arrangement in place. So we've closed the high seas pockets within our EZ, PNA EZ to, to fishing. Hello and welcome to this week's Online brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Huang. Ambassador Tessie Lambuan said Kiribati is one of the eight signatories of the Nauru Agreement concerning cooperation in the management of fisheries of common interest or parties to the Nauru Agreement or in short PNA. PNA controls 25 to 30 percent of the tuna supply. Taiwan and Kiribati signed an MOU recently that paves the way for the collaboration in areas such as investment, maintenance and management and while catching marketing and transportation. Ambassador Tessie Aria Lamboin mentioned that the tuna we eat might come from Kiribati. I know that sometimes overfishing of uh, fish stocks could uh, be a problem, mm. and I think it is a problem for every country. So how does the government of uh, Kiribati uh, handle this problem? Mm. So with the oceanic fisheries... The PNA and the Forum Fisheries Agency. So we collaborate as a, as a region and as a as a block to manage the resources. So under the PNA, we've uh, put in very stringent measures. So for licensing, uh, we have the conditions. So um, we're probably the only coastal state. Uh, 
that put the uh, close the high seas pockets. You know, the high seas and the international law is is, mm. is open for everybody, but. In, in our groups of islands, we have high seas pockets within our EZ and sometimes enclosed by our EZs. And the, the Kiribati is, is an example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so under under the, the PNA, the, so we have we've had like lots of um, arrangement in place. So we, we we've closed the high seas pockets within our EZ PNA EZ to to fishing. Um, those who are licensed to fish in the PNA waters, they so they they are required to have observers on board. They, they, but this is only for Pesinas at the moment, and we're we're now looking at the longliners to also have observers there. So we're getting more data on the catch and the type of catch, also the bite catch and mm-hmm. everything that is required to to enforce our, our, our management and conservation measures. Um, we also regulate the, the use of uh, fishing aggregate uh, devices, uh, especially for piscinas. And uh, so we close this three months um, moratorium every year. So from, I think, July to September, the, the, you're not allowed to use fats mm-hmm. uh, when you're fishing. Mm-hmm. And so... These are just some of the the conditions, but there are a lot. So, so in terms of uh, monitoring, uh, one of the the challenges we face is actually lack or, or insufficient uh, maritime surveillance capacity. Uh, Kiribati has 3.5 million square kilometers of its EZ, so one of the largest in the world, but we only have one patrol boat, like a coast guard, oh, okay. yeah, a patrol boat to. To police that that whole area, so it's very very difficult uh, to to Surve- to look after. Do the surveillance. Mm. So this is one of the areas where where we need uh, more support. We get um, aerial surveillance support from Australia, New Zealand, and and also support um, in our eastern waters from the U.S. Coast Guard. Uh, the the French uh, government also provides some aerial support, but I think it's the surface surface uh, enforcement capacity that we need because even if we get reports through the satellite or the aerial uh, surveillance that there, there is a suspicious uh, fishing vessel uh, seen in, in our waters we we wouldn't be able to, to arrest that and to with, with, with what we have yes. yeah, immediately mm. so with, we have we have a very um, we have a cooperative uh, the arrangement with the U.S. Coast Guard, where we uh, we um, we we have one of our enforcement officers. So when the the Coast Guard um, does the uh, surveillance around the around our waters, so we allow them to come in our waters. So we we have one of our enforcement officers on board. So if they see uh, if they if they they want to board a vessel, send it they will be able to support our enforcement officer. So our enforcement officer has the, the authority to board, and but with the support of, of the whole U.S. Coast Guard crew, it, it has made our, our work much easier. But those are like kind of options in, in the supporting our efforts to, to police our waters. You're listening to Online, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. Today I'm speaking with the Ambassador of Kiribati, Ambassador Tessie Aria Lamborn.
Kiribati right now is also under the threat of uh, climate change as suffered by other neighboring countries. And about 33 islands of Kiribati right now are under threat. Ambassador, could you talk about this as well? Mm. well this, is, uh, this continues to be a, a major challenge to our country and also to the whole world, to our p- the Pacific and to the low-lying coral atoll nations. This is felt every day. So the, the, main, the main worry at the moment is, is the, the impact on our water resource. So as an atoll, we have underground aquifers that float on the seawater. So with the rising sea levels, the, the sea the seawater will seep seep into the freshwater lands and, and contaminates that. So that's 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 our worry. And also with the uh, in, increasing drought conditions, so we we're getting less and less rainfall. The rainfall replenishes our our, our freshwater resource, the freshwater lands. So without rain, we're getting um, the less and less. So the 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 water lands will get um, thin and thinner, and mm. and so it's very very susceptible to saltwater intrusion. And so this is this is our main our main uh, government's worry. So providing uh, potable water for the people continuing to, to do that, and with the the high population growth rate of we have two percent uh, annual growth rate of of our population, and so trying to to provide water resource for for the growing population is something that's that's a major impact of of climate change of course the other impact uh, in terms of the more frequent and more severe um, storm surges that we get they they're unpredictable now we used to know when they the season yeah. is yeah. but now it's very hard to to predict it's it's almost like every month we get the 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 storm surge or the high tides mm-hmm. uh, the spring tides and our country is a coastal country so everybody lives on the coast so with the with each storm surge there are always damages to infrastructure and especially to the homes so government is unable to provide uh, support to protect all the homes, but the the priority is is now given to public infrastructure, critical public infrastructure, health, uh, transport, and education, all the all the important infrastructure in mm-hmm. Kiribati. So that's that's very damaging, and and of course um, the cost of protecting the coastline is is something that that's that's yeah, that's face that's that's we're challenged with. But our government has issued, um, launched its climate change policy, and and our our focus now is to build the resilience of our islands and our peoples. So we uh, investing in renewable energy uh, mm-hmm. because we also we also want to 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 contribute or meet our our targets under the the Paris Agreement. Yeah, so we are training our people in 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 those in those fields. We when we we're, we're building and and applying uh, the soft and hard uh, coastal protection measures. So planting mangrove trees and 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 also building sea walls where they're critically needed. Uh, and this is also supported under the the the. The projects from the from grants Taiwan. from Taiwan. Mm-hmm. So we we're 
we're very grateful to, to Taiwan and our partners who have helped our people build their resilience. And training, awareness, it, it's, an, it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing uh, process. So our students, our, our children now learn about climate change at, at the elementary level. Yeah, so we hope that the big boss in the U.S. can hear that not saying that climate change is not an issue. It is an issue even here in Taiwan because uh, we haven't seen so many floods uh, in the southern part of Taiwan or here in the northern part of Taiwan. And uh, you can see the unusual pattern of, uh, of the climate change. So when we talk about the huge countries, the big countries, what do you hope for the international community, especially big countries like the U.S. or the European Union, to help in this regard? We we always ask and, and urge, actually, urge the international community, and especially those who can do something about the greenhouse gases and the stabilization. I, mean, I know it's 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 very difficult to 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 try and stabilize what's already in the atmosphere, but um, so we, we keep urging those who, who can make a difference to do so. But the more importantly is for the 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 big countries and those with resources to help victims or the smaller country like like Kiribati to to adapt or to build our resilience, which is now what we want to do. So we need them to help us build climate-proofed infrastructure and to help us um, with the transfer of technology in renewable energy and and the, to harness what we already have in terms of the solar energy, wind energy, wave, and and others. So we need we need their support in there. We also need them to help us um, get the like desalination plants, so so we can provide the potable water for our people. So there there is a lot that we we need we need the international community mm-hmm. to do for us. Mm-hmm. Ambassador, one last question. You have served as Kiribati Secretary for Internal Affairs, Secretary for Commerce, Industry and Cooperatives, and Secretary for Foreign Affairs and Immigration, and the list can go on and go on. And in 2006, appointed Secretary to the Cabinet and now Ambassador to Taiwan, overseeing Japan and Korea. Could you tell us the challenges uh, you have faced doing all these different types of work? Mm. Now where do I start? <laughs> uh, now I've I've um, I've worked in 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 government for over twenty years, and so I I've I've really enjoyed um, working, and especially in those positions where you you can you can you can help uh, lead the teams in in the different ministries and um, also help improve service for for the the people you serve and the in the particular areas so of course uh, resource is always a any a challenge for us in Kiribati there's a lot that we can do there's a lot that 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 we want to do uh, sometimes there are things that we we have the capacity to do but we don't have the resources to 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 carry them out uh, Kiribati has 33 atolls so 33 made up of 33 uh, atolls so 32 actually atolls 32 atolls and one raised uh, reef island um, and they're scattered across a wide area so 5 million square kilometers. The distance between the east and the west uh, part of Kiribati is comparable 
to the distance between the east and the west coast of the United States. And we have um, so 21 inhabited islands. The trying to provide service to the people living on those 21 islands scattered across that vast ocean is, is very difficult. So the ministries have worked in to try and, and duplicate because that's also a challenge for our government is when we talk about health, we, on, we have one main hospital on, in the capital, Tara, that serve everybody. So we hope that there will be more resources available to the people of Kiribati in the future. And we've been joined in a studio today by the ambassador of Kiribati, Ambassador Tessie Aria Lamboin. And that's it for this week's On the Line, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kilohertz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kilohertz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kilohertz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kilohertz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.